This finding utterly overthrew the previous strongly held notion that prejudice is an inevitable feature of human existence, and that we had no power to prevent these automatic and unconscious responses from occurring. Apparently, social psychologists and neuroscientists had grossly underestimated human capacity to see others as they truly are, to see others as unique individuals just like us, rather than automatically reacting with a danger alert, responding to unfamiliar people as if they were members of a small tribe of hostile cavemen who would like nothing better than to clobber us with a stone axe and raid our supply of berries and mastodon steaks. It was astounding. These subjects had already been shown to have racial prejudice to at least some degree. And even if one did not have stereotyped beliefs, it was thought that at least the negative emotional bias against other groups was a deeply ingrained automatic human response, something beyond our conscious control. But now it seemed that this fundamental innate human response, a response that was at the root of prejudice, hatred, conflict, and even violence, the us-against-them response, could be quickly and easily extinguished. In fact, all we need is the deliberate intention to look at others as individuals. Hmm, I wonder what kind of vegetable this guy enjoys. This technique was so easy to do and so effective that it led researchers to wonder if things could really be that simple. So they decided to up the ante. Based on previous studies, they had documented prejudiced responses to a variety of common outgroups, groups based on age, gender, disabilities, or wealth. Like the photos of racial groups, these photos also elicited various automatic emotional reactions. They now decided to try the vegetable technique with extreme outgroups, highly stigmatized groups in our society such as the homeless and drug addicts. Their previous work with extreme outgroups had revealed some unexpected findings. Using the same fMRI techniques, they found that viewing the photos of extreme outgroups instantaneously activated an area of the brain known as the insula, an area associated with avoidance behavior and feelings of extreme disgust. Significantly, in previous studies, this pattern of brain activity had been seen in subjects' responses to non-human objects such as garbage, mutilation, and human waste. The most striking finding in this study was that viewing the homeless people's photographs also failed to activate a brain region known as the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, MPFC, an area of the brain that responds to socially significant stimuli and lights up whenever people think about other human beings or themselves. The implication of this finding? Researchers reported the brain's response was as if people had stumbled on a pile of garbage. Using the vegetable method with the photos of the human garbage, Fisk was able to reverse the prejudiced response to those photos as well, with the result that the human being recognition region, the MPFC, was activated, and the disgusting trash response was not activated. Unbelievably simple. What kind of vegetable do you think this beggar would like? 
allowed the subject to see a real human being instead of an inanimate pile of garbage. In addition to helping individuals overcome prejudice against other groups, the principle behind the vegetable technique can potentially help eliminate another widespread social problem that we identified earlier, stereotype threat. The salient feature of the vegetable technique is deliberately seeing someone as an individual instead of as a representative of a group. Applying that same principle, University of Colorado psychologist Jeffrey Cohen and his research team conducted a study with enormous implications for our educational system and the racial achievement gap, the well-known finding that, on average, black students lag behind white students in academic achievement. This gap is widely thought to be due to stereotype threat. In this study, the researchers selected a seventh-grade class comprised of roughly half-white students and half-black students. At the beginning of a semester, the teacher gave every student a list of values, for instance, maintaining relationships with friends or family, working to be good at art, cultivating athletic ability. The researchers then randomly divided the class into two groups. In the experimental group, the teacher asked the students to choose the value most important to them and write an essay explaining why they considered the value important. Students in the control condition were asked to indicate their least important value and write about why this value might be important to someone else. Once students had finished writing, they placed their essay in an envelope and gave it to their teacher. The teacher then continued with the day's normal agenda. The entire procedure took approximately 15 minutes. At the end of the semester, Cohen and his colleagues were given access to the official transcripts of all the students. The results were stunning. As expected, on average, the black students did more poorly than the white students. However, the black students in the experimental group improved on average by roughly 25% of a grade point, which represented about a 40% reduction in the racial achievement gap. The results of this study were so shocking, in fact, that they had a hard time believing it. They repeated their study on another group of students, with the same results, the odds of this occurring by chance being roughly 1 in 5,000. The authors of the study theorized that just writing this one essay had the effect of reaffirming the students' self-integrity, enhancing their self-worth, and affirming their individual values. Thus, the assignment appeared to buffer minority students against stereotype threat and its consequences. This is just a preliminary study, of course, but the implications are vast. The achievement gap has been one of the most challenging issues in our society for educators, and no doubt there are multiple causes. But considering the millions of dollars spent every year to try to close this gap, and the countless number of worker hours spent in so many specialized programs to try to reduce the gap, an intervention that takes only minutes could be of immense value, extending far beyond academic achievement. Our Fundamental Equality Your Holiness, to review your approach to overcoming prejudice, you mentioned how we need a variety of methods, such as personal contact, or seeing the others as individuals rather than as mere representatives of a group. But your main method seems to be overcoming our negative conditioning 
by challenging and overcoming our false beliefs, such as the inherent superiority or inferiority of one's own or other groups. That's right, he confirmed. So, do you have any further thoughts about some specific lines of reasoning that we could apply here to help overcome our negative conditioning or these false beliefs? Yes, he said. The way to do this is by reflecting on our fundamental equality as human beings. I think the more you increase awareness, actively promote positive ideals, such as the fundamental equality among all people, the less prejudice there will be in a society. Can you suggest ways that can help us develop a greater appreciation of our fundamental equality as human beings? I asked. For instance, he explained, Modern biology and genetics have powerfully demonstrated how few differences there really are between human beings. So, arguments can be made on a scientific basis, pointing out, for example, how on a genetic level these kinds of racial differences, leading to the claims of superiority or inferiority, simply do not exist. Investigating these scientific findings more closely could help. In fact, Maybe you could investigate this and include it in our book. There are also concepts in secular philosophy and political thought that emphasize the equality of human beings, such as the concept of natural rights, as well as the socialist notion of the fraternity of the proletariat, which transcend national boundaries. In liberal democratic systems, too, there is the idea that all people are born equal. In addition there is the fundamental premise underlying the justice system that we are all equal in the eyes of the law. Your Holiness, here you are suggesting really analyzing and reflecting very deeply on our fundamental equality as human beings. I notice that the lines of reasoning you are suggesting are all from the Western perspective. But what about from the Buddhist perspective? Aren't there certain practices that would help create this sense of fundamental equality? I asked. Of course, there is the practice of cultivating equanimity in Buddhism that could help reduce our biases. Could you describe that practice? Yes. This meditation practice involves visualizing a friend, an enemy, and a neutral person, and then first allowing your mind to react to each of these in your normal way, observing how you feel attachment to your loved one a feeling of hostility toward the one whom you dislike, and a feeling of indifference or no emotion to that stranger. The next step is to ask yourself, why do I feel such different emotions to these three individuals? You will find some grounds, like your friend has done this or that for you, has shown you kindness, and so on. But then you begin to investigate, analyze, use your reason to see if these are valid grounds if they are reasonable. Analyzing in this way, you will discover that the reasons, the basis for calling one person friend, another enemy, or feeling indifference toward the third, are not permanent conditions, and this may change at any moment. Your friend may harm you and may become an enemy. Your enemy may show you kindness and become a friend, and the stranger may become a friend or enemy in the future. So, Deeply reflecting in this way, you will realize that there are no justifiable grounds for discriminating between them in this way, 
and feeling such strong emotions. You will see that these designations or labels of friend, enemy, or stranger are impermanent and subject to change at any time. So, Howard, this type of visualization practice helps reduce your biases for or against others and levels out these extreme fluctuations of emotion that you feel for others. The purpose of such an exercise is to establish a stable basis so you can cultivate the same level of closeness and caring toward all people, the same compassion. Of course, the Dalai Lama added, this practice can be especially powerful from the Buddhist point of view, when we take into account many past lifetimes. So your friend may have been your enemy in the past, your enemy may have been your closest loved one many times, and so on. This is why it is very helpful to have a variety, different lines of reasoning. One line of reasoning may be more effective for one person, another line of reasoning for someone else. But whether it is from a scientific perspective or from the perspective of Buddhist practice, the main thing is reflecting on these truths deeply so that it becomes part of your fundamental outlook and how you relate to others. The Myth of Race Well, there's at least one thing that humans are really good at. Our imaginations are endless when it comes to thinking up ways to see ourselves as different from one another. No matter what characteristics we use as a basis to distinguish ourselves from others and separate into groups, those same characteristics can potentially be used as a basis for prejudice, discrimination, or hatred. In today's world, we can find prejudices based on gender, nationality, weight, age group, level of wealth, political party, degree of physical attractiveness, religion, and countless other attributes. In reflecting on the destructive effects of the many forms of prejudice, there is no doubt that racial prejudice is among the greatest sources of human suffering and misery. It is clearly worthwhile, therefore, to take a closer look at racism and the concept of race. According to the 1990 census, for example, Americans said they belonged to some 300 different races or ethnic groups. Where are they all hiding? I haven't seen them. Latinos divided themselves into 70 different categories. Native Americans separated themselves into 600 tribes. We say race is biological, yet we pick out a religion and call it a race, Jewish. Or we refer to people from the Irish race, for instance, designating a nationality as a race. Or perhaps my favorite, the Aryan race, that pure master race of Nazis and skinheads. Historically, the Aryan race refers to a variety of Indo-European peoples who lived in Iran, Afghanistan, and India around 4000 BC in those lands later settled by ancient Hittites, distinguished by speaking the Proto-Indo-European languages. Well, maybe I'm too skeptical, but if I had to guess, I'd bet that not more than 60% of the Nazis and skinheads grew up in the ancient Hittite region, and speak Proto-Indo-European, fluently anyway, and I'd bet that even fewer know how to read it and write it. In this chapter, 
we have been discussing how people are born with innate biases and how we tend to react to other races with a negative emotional bias. But in looking at this issue more closely, human beings do not have an instinctual bias against other races. What we do seem to have is the tendency to have a bias against other groups in general, as discussed earlier, those who seem different, those whom we define as outgroups. This is not a racial issue. In fact, during the period when evolutionary forces were shaping our fundamental brain architecture, the different races we see on Earth today did not even exist. Different races did not appear on the scene until 100,000 or 200,000 years ago. And by that time, the brain had already undergone most or all of its evolutionary changes. Ever since the Human Genome Project announced its initial results in 2000 in unlocking the sequence of the approximately 25,000 genes, there has been a renewed debate on the nature of race. Three billion different base pairs the various combinations of the four basic chemical units of the DNA molecule, like letters of the genetic alphabet, make up human DNA. Virtually every cell in the body contains a complete set of the two long, twisting, paired strands of DNA molecules, broken down into the discrete regions known as genes, each gene containing the recipe to make one or more protein-building blocks. This is the fundamental blueprint of life, carrying the complete instructions to build and run a human body. Unlocking the sequence of these genes was a remarkable achievement, taking over a decade of intensive research with the collaboration and contribution of scientists all over the world. This look into the code of life sparked a renewed interest in taking a look at who we are and what it means to be a human and the differences and similarities among different races. It was reported in the popular press that every human being is approximately 99.9% .9 the same, and there is greater variation in a person's genetic makeup within each race than among the races. This finding leads many people to conclude that humans are so fundamentally alike that the concept of race is outdated, essentially a myth a mental projection, at least from the biological point of view. For example, we place such a great importance on skin color in our society, yet the difference between two human beings based on skin color is so small, it is almost non-existent. In fact, it has been reported, for instance, that white skin is produced by the changing of one DNA letter out of three billion. We think we know what race is. In fact, Everybody knows. Yet when it comes to really defining it, we are lost. The closer we look for the essence of each race, looking for that one person we can point to as an example of the biologically and genetically pure race, the more it seems to be in our imagination. Soon after such findings began to get abroad, as always, some scientists began to refute such findings. They pointed out, for example that there are some genetic differences between populations when one looks at some alleles, the variations of different genes. Still, the fact remains that there are no clear-cut distinct divisions among races, since you'll always find members of other populations or races or ethnic groups 
who carry that special allele that is thought to belong to a single population. Scientific research also reminds us that we are all family, literally. We share common ancestors, and our most recent common female ancestor of every person alive today is popularly known as mitochondrial Eve. She lived in Africa around 140,000 years ago. No, she is not the same Eve as in the Bible. As this Eve was not the only woman on earth, she had contemporary family and friends, and we've inherited some of their traits as well. Scientists have traced our ancestry to her as a result of a special bit of DNA, a small strand that is found in mitochondria, little sausage-shaped structures inside cells, the cell's powerhouse that produce energy. Most of our DNA is a mix of DNA from both our parents, but mitochondrial DNA gets passed down only through mothers, and it does not change. So, using special calculations, scientists have traced back our common ancestry to one woman. For that matter, all men are brothers. Well, at least men share a common male ancestor, Y-chromosomal Adam, who lived in Africa around 60,000 years ago. This was determined in the same manner using a piece of DNA on the Y-chromosome that is passed down only to men, that does not mix with other DNA. It is like a genetic surname that allows men to trace their paternal lineages back through time. Race may appear to be something concrete, because we can see differences before our own eyes. So few question what it really is. For most people, the tremendous importance people place upon race seems to be plenty of evidence that human beings can be clearly distinguished on the basis of race. It is enough that we seem to intuitively know in our gut that there must be fundamental and functional biological differences. But what are these differences? Scientists have theorized that the different racial appearances humans have are derived from certain isolated populations living in a certain discrete geographic location for many thousands of years. The more one lived in hot, sunny climates, the more skin melanin we needed to protect us, and the body may be taller or shaped differently to give us more surface area for evaporation. Or if we lived in colder climates with less sun, we needed less melanin in our skin, but maybe we needed shorter, more compact bodies, with more fat to conserve warmth. But it seems tragic to place so much emphasis on something with no more significance than different members of the same family choosing to clothe their bodies differently according to the climate where they were raised. Continuing with our discussion of racism and prejudice, I said, Your Holiness, you say how certain positive ways of thinking could be promoted within a society that could reinforce the belief in our fundamental equality and help overcome racism, prejudice. But I was just thinking how after the human genome was cracked, there was a lot of press coverage about how 99.9% .9 of our DNA, the blueprint for building the human body, is exactly the same as every person we will ever meet. To me, that was an amazing statistic. I felt that was really powerful evidence showing how alike we are. So, on a genetic basis, we are much more similar than we are different, 
and the difference is negligible. Even President Clinton went on TV and mentioned this figure, and has continued to mention it publicly even after his presidency was over. Additionally, the fact is that these values or ideals such as democracy, equality, and so on are already promoted in our society. Yet that awareness does not seem to have such a big impact on society. People all over the world still exploit each other, fight with each other, and generally act as if the differences between us are huge, almost as if we are a different species. So I'm wondering, what else is missing? Howard, I think if you look from a wider perspective, you will find that the promotion of these values is actually working, is effective. From the standpoint of human history, there have been great advances in the world, with greater awareness of these values, the ideals of equality, and so on, spreading worldwide. Look at the advances in just the past few hundred years. Well, that may be true, I admitted, but I don't know. It still seems that for some people at least, it is very difficult for them to revise their outlook and perception, to expand the boundaries of those with whom they identify, to include others as part of us, based on a deep sense of our fundamental equality. Yes, it might be difficult, His Holiness replied, and even though in some cases it may be difficult, I think that it is possible to change. Look at your example of America and the cultural phenomenon in the United States of the Civil Rights Movement. At one time, there were communities that were completely segregated. But in cases where the minority black community was given equal opportunity as a result of this movement, achieving the same socioeconomic level and living in the same neighborhoods as the other races, sharing the same community problems and concerns, such as the education of their children, I think there was less division of us and them. On the other hand, in those communities in which the black people were afforded fewer civil rights, living separately, there was more suspicion between the two races. So I think this shows that there is potential, at least, to reduce these kinds of divisions. It is not impossible. That's true, I said again. He was starting to convince me. Still, as I was wondering about the potential for genuine change in the most intractable conflicts between racial, ethnic, or other groups, he continued, as if sensing my doubts. Howard, here we are talking about prejudice and conflict between groups, and this reminds me of a moving story I once heard during one of my visits to Israel. I met some people who were involved in a grassroots peace movement there that brought together children from the Israeli and the Palestinian communities. These children were taught to see the image of God in each other. They practiced reminding themselves that God was in the children of the other side, in the same way that He was in theirs. This was a kind of equanimity practice. I was told that whenever there was a renewed conflict, these children, who had trained to see God in the face of their fellow children from the other side, found it almost impossible to develop hatred towards the other children. They were unable to reduce these children under the generalized category of the enemy. I think this is really wonderful, the Dalai Lama exclaimed enthusiastically. So I really believe that genuine change is possible, he concluded. But of course, change takes time. As we mentioned, 
These attitudes are based on false beliefs and distortions of thinking, and any change in society must first begin in the individual mind and heart, with the transformation of that person's outlook. This change occurs one person at a time. Chapter 5 Extreme Nationalism Well, this week we have been talking about us-versus-them divisions and the dangers of this progressing to prejudice, conflict, and violence. I'm just thinking that identifying with one's country or nation seems to be one of the most powerful examples of us. It seems that following a period of national crisis, there always seems to be this resurgence of patriotism and nationalism. Of course, a lot of the time, this nationalism expresses itself as a kind of vocal patriotism, expressions of support for one's country, a lot of flag-waving, and so on. But historically, the more intense this kind of nationalism, the greater the danger of falling into destructive patterns, and it is not much of a leap to go from a zealous kind of patriotism to overt hostility toward other countries. This kind of thing has acted as a fuel for a lot of conflicts in history. So I'm just wondering, what is your own take on nationalism, its benefits versus the disadvantages or destructive potential of nationalism? The Dalai Lama said, I do not think that nationalism in itself is destructive. Being a member of a particular nation can be a part of a person's sense of identity. So nationalism can be useful, giving you a sense of belonging and you can have a sense of pride in your national identity. This is good. I think nationalism is like an instrument, or like science. If you utilize science the wrong way, then it could bring disaster. If you use it properly, it brings benefit. So, it is up to us to use it in the right way. Now, when we speak of nationalism, we are talking about differences based on national identities, a key part of which are differences in cultural heritage and historical background. Each nation has a characteristic culture or group of cultures, a cultural heritage. Of course, there are also geographical boundaries between nations. That is a part of it. But I think culture is the main thing. And of course, each community must have the right to preserve their own culture, including language, customs, and dress, and so on. I asked, You mention the benefits of nationalism and the importance of maintaining a cultural or ethnic identity, but wouldn't you agree there can be disadvantages of nationalism as well? Destructive aspects? Here, I would distinguish between a healthy nationalism and extreme nationalism, the Dalai Lama replied. When nationalism becomes extreme, it can become a dangerous ideology, so powerful that it can incite people to commit acts of aggression. How this can happen, we saw very clearly in the tragic story of the Balkans at the end of the 20th century, with the terms ethnic cleansing and balkanization entering our everyday vocabulary. What we witnessed in this tragedy was how extreme national identities led to a vicious cycle of violence between the Serbs, the Croats, and the Bosnians. Here was an example of the effects of one's national identity overriding other aspects of people's identity that could otherwise provide a basis for coming together. So, as a society, 
What do you think we can learn from that tragic experience in Eastern Europe? I asked. Clearly, one important lesson we need to learn is that people's national identities are very important to them and should be respected. In particular, what this tells us is that when different nationalities coexist within a larger group, whether within a federation of countries like with the European Union or a single country, we need to ensure that the different nationalities are respected and accorded dignity. Of course, if you have a diversity of different cultures within one country, in order for all of them to thrive, I think freedom is very important and a good, fair constitution with the rule of law. At the very moment the Dalai Lama spoke of these issues, freedom, rule of law, respect for all cultures, all nations, traditional Tibetan culture, and Tibet's historical status as a nation, was in the grips of a death struggle that would determine the survival of an ancient tradition and heritage. To him, this was a living issue, not a matter of abstract philosophy. Terms such as freedom, respect for individual cultures, and rule of law were not mere slogans to him, or sound bites for the evening news. Quickened by an inner passion, and marked by a certain resolute look in his eye, the Dalai Lama's words conveyed a genuine sense of urgency. One sensed that real human suffering was at stake, and that the Dalai Lama's dedication to these principles and the boundaries of his concern were not reserved for Tibetan culture alone, but were extended to all cultures on earth. I could not help but be moved. Anyway, I think that the tragedy in the Balkans can teach us an important lesson of what can happen when that kind of basic respect is absent. He paused, then added quietly, Respect for others' traditions is so important in today's world. Thinking about a comment I had heard the Dalai Lama make in the past, the idea that real peace was not merely the absence of war, it occurred to me that the mere absence of prejudice was not the same as true respect. I observed, Up to this point, we've been talking about overcoming prejudice, but now it seems we are taking it one step further, or becoming more proactive, talking about cultivating a sense of respect for other groups. The logical question is, do you have any thoughts about how to increase or cultivate a greater sense of respect for other cultures or nationalities? Yes, I think that we have discussed how some individuals may be more educated, or have more wealth, and so on, and some may have less, but despite these kinds of differences, they are still all human beings, and worthy of human dignity and respect on that fundamental level. The same principle applies on the level of cultures and nationalities. There may be others who are different, whose way of life or manner of dress you may not understand, but you can still maintain respect and accord them human dignity based on your common humanity. But here, he continued, there's another thing, something that is very important on many levels, learning to appreciate diversity, really reflecting on its value investigating its benefits. The more you can appreciate diversity, the easier it will be to respect those who may be different. For example, from the viewpoint of humanity as a whole, I think the variety of cultures, variety of ethnic groups can be enriching to humanity. 
So the point really is that in order for the collective humanity to thrive, the individual members of that collective have to thrive. A good analogy is a garden. In order for a garden to be beautiful and wonderful, there needs to be diversity of flowers in the garden, plants, and the combination of different sizes, shapes, and colors adds to the garden, and each of them needs to thrive in their own environment. Whereas if you have only one type of flower in that garden, in just one collection, it doesn't work. It is the diversity that gives a garden its beauty. The time for our meeting was up. So engrossed in the Dalai Lama's words, I had not even noticed the usual flurry of activity by his staff and attendants coming and going on the veranda outside in preparation to usher one guest out and another one in. But now hovering around the screen door, the signal was given by the Dalai Lama's secretary, and I quickly prepared to leave. As I stepped down onto the veranda, framed by a dense arrangement of purplish bougainvillea draped over a latticework, I watched the Dalai Lama's next guests ushered into the room to meet with him. It was a small group of men and women, and I noticed that the members of the group represented several different nationalities and all seemed united by their excitement to see the Dalai Lama. An apt ending for our discussion about harmony among all nationalities. As I walked down the driveway to the main gate of the Dalai Lama's residence complex, I enjoyed the lush vegetation of the grounds, thick bamboo trees and bushes, oak, fir, and pine trees, wild rhododendrons, and potted flowers of every color in full bloom, purple, yellow, red, orange. As I slowly walked down the hill, enjoying the diversity of a real garden while still thinking of the Dalai Lama's garden metaphor for the beauty of a diversity of peoples, I was overcome by a peaceful, hopeful feeling, as if perhaps some day the Dalai Lama's vision could come to pass. One does not need to look very far into the past to come upon the most horrible examples of the destructive force of extreme nationalism or ethnic prejudice and hatred. The example chosen by the Dalai Lama, the Bosnian War, was not so long ago. Almost immediately after the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina declared independence from the former Yugoslavia in 1991, the world began to witness the very worst side of extreme nationalism as the three traditional ethnic groups living in the region, Orthodox Serbs, Catholic Croats, and Bosniak Muslims, began a fierce civil war based on ethnic nationalism, each struggling to gain political control of the new country or parts of it. By the time the war ended with the 1995 Dayton Accords, more than 100,000 people had been killed and almost 2 million people displaced, the results of a war that laid waste to much of the region, leaving in its wake 60% of the homes, half of the schools, and a third of the hospitals damaged or destroyed, along with the destruction of power plants, roads, and water systems, torture, soldiers raping women in front of their families, in public squares, sometimes abusing and gang-raping them together, for days or even weeks at a time. All three sides contributed. Serbs were particularly ruthless in their ethnic cleansing efforts, systematically burning down homes, 
placing men in detention centers, where some were tortured or starved to death, using tactics seeking to eliminate members of the other groups living within their geographic regions. With suffering on such a vast and unimaginable scale, sometimes it is easy to look upon such wars as world events and lose a sense of the impact of extreme nationalism in the lives of ordinary individuals. But perhaps the story of three lives would be a powerful example for the tragedy of us and them thinking. In our earlier discussion, the Dalai Lama spoke about the relationship between the individual and the group, how a person could have a strong sense of individual identity, of independence, of confidence and personal strength, and at the very same time have a deep sense of belonging in a group. It's not me or we, but me and we. Here, he extends the same principle to groups, believing in the possibility of many ethnic groups living in one country, each celebrating its own uniqueness, honoring its traditions, while at the very same time cultivating a sense of belonging and a national identity. Such a model, the ideal balance of individual and group identity, was once seen in a group of 16- and 17-year-old boys, Bosniaks, Croatians, and Serbs, who came together in 1984 to play for the Yugoslavian junior national basketball team, a team that was to become a legend. For four years, this group was invincible, a dream team of young players who never lost a game in formal international competition on the court and who grew up together off the court, forging deep friendships as they traveled together, roomed together, trained hard, and shared each other's lives. Their sense of personal camaraderie and athletic confidence was unshakable during those years, to the degree that the night before their most important game, the 1987 World Championship for Junior Men, they snuck out of their hotel rooms together to spend the night jumping on trampolines and they still emerged triumphant, beating the Americans at their own game the next day, 86-76. to 76. After winning the World Junior Championship, many of these young future NBA stars went on to play for the Yugoslav senior national team. Friendships remained firm between Serbian players such as Vladi Divac or Aleksandr Djordjevic and Croatian players such as Dino Raja or Toni Kukos who continued playing together through their 1991 victorious European Championship in Rome. The first sign of the end of the young dream team came on the afternoon of the finals of the championship series, just days before Slovenia had declared its independence from the Yugoslav Federation. The Minister of Sport of the new nation had called a young Slovenian guard of the team to tell him if he played that night he would be considered a traitor to his country. As the Balkan region soon broke apart and became embroiled in conflict, suddenly new categories emerged. No longer Yugoslavians, the players now had new teams and new labels, Croatians, Serbs, Bosniaks. To many, these labels seemed to eclipse all other aspects of their identity. Bosnian Muslim team member Teo Alibigovic said, you know, I never knew what nationality anyone was when we were playing with each other, and I bet you they never knew what I was. Well, now we know. The friendships, once thought unbreakable, 
now seemed to crumble under the pressure. It was particularly hard for two of the star players, Serbian Divac and Croatian Kukos, who had become very close friends over the years. Divac had tried to stay in contact with his former teammates, and although they had not entirely broken off contact, he was still deeply troubled by the strained nature of the friendships. He even broke down in tears during a 1996 interview as he spoke of the tragic developments. Kukos, meanwhile, reported, Last summer I visited hospitals to see the wounded. Once you see 19, 20-year-old guys without arms, without legs, you don't think about basketball. Fortunately, as the years have passed, a healing has taken place among most of the former teammates, and today these two are friends again, working together in the Balkans on humanitarian efforts and teaching tolerance to children through basketball. When you see a team like that in action, it is beyond a sport. It can become a metaphor for the height of human potential, like the Boston Celtics dynasty of the 1960s, led by basketball greats including Bill Russell, John Havlicek, and Sam Jones. It's the perfect balance, where you can see the highest development of individual effort, individualism at its finest, and at the same time, the highest representation of group effort. In these truly great teams, you'll see five separate individuals, each with his own unique talent, each clearly delineated, with their own personality. One might be a great clutch shooter, another tough on defense and shot blocking, a third a hard-driving scorer. No one man may have it all, but each has developed his own specialized talent, while knowing the strengths of the others, and when they come together, they are in complete sync with a kind of synergy as if they are truly one organism, with the whole greater than the sum of the parts. I can't think of a more apt description of the Dalai Lama's ideas about the possibility of having a strong individual identity and a strong group identity at the same time, as well as an apt metaphor for the benefits of having a diversity of individuals within a larger whole. Whether it is basketball players on a team, or ethnic groups within a larger federation. His Holiness suggested deeply reflecting on the benefits of diversity as a powerful practical strategy to help cultivate respect for those who may be different. While such a team provides both an illustration and a broader metaphor for the benefits of diversity, there has also been a great deal of scientific research providing more concrete evidence of the benefits of diversity which is worthwhile to review. The Benefits of Diversity In his book, The Wisdom of Crowds, author James Surowiecki opens with the story of an 85-year-old British scientist, Francis Galton, an expert in the science of heredity, who decided to go to a fair and livestock exhibition one day in 1906. He had a long-standing interest in breeding, and was curious to see the results of animal breeding that day. The author recounts how Galton came across a weight-judging competition at the fair, in which people were betting on the weight of a fat ox on display, after it had been slaughtered and dressed. With prizes offered for the best guesses, ultimately around 800 people made a guess. While there were a good number of butchers and farmers among the 800 contestants, overall, 
they were a diverse lot, with quite a few who had no particular specialized knowledge of cattle. Galton figured that even though there were some experts in the crowd, most of the people would have no idea of what the final weight would be, and the average guess was likely to be way off the mark. After the contest was over, Galton borrowed all the tickets from the contest and analyzed them. After averaging all the contestants' guesses to come up with a single figure, representing the collective wisdom of the crowd that day, Galton was stunned with the results. The crowd's judgment was essentially perfect. After being slaughtered and dressed, the ox weighed 1,198 pounds. The crowd guessed 1,197 Sir Wiki goes on in his book to give example after example of similar stories and adding scientific theories and studies, demonstrating the basic thesis of his book. Under the right circumstances, he writes, groups are remarkably intelligent and are often smarter than the smartest people in them. He makes the counterintuitive argument that groups of people are better at problem-solving and make better decisions than even the top experts in the group. Of course, we all know how incredibly foolish people can be at times when assembled in crowds, prone to idiocy ranging from witch hunts to unthinkable acts of evil, for example, lynching. So, the key here is identifying the right circumstances Sir Wiki refers to, the conditions that allow the wisdom of the group to emerge. The conditions identified by Sir Wiki lend support to the Dalai Lama's argument that diversity whether a diversity of individuals in a crowd, a diversity of cultures within a nation, or the diversity of nations on our planet, can sometimes offer great benefits. Drawing upon many scientific studies and an abundance of practical examples, Surawiki concludes that the conditions that are necessary for the crowd to be wise, diversity, independence, and a particular type of decentralization. Thus, we come to another benefit of diversity. Diversity enhances the wisdom of a group, improving our problem-solving and decision-making capacity. With so many problems in the world today, this is a benefit that is not to be dismissed lightly. If a group of people are seeking to solve a problem or come to a consensus on an important decision, a diversity of fresh perspectives, new sources of information, and different funds of knowledge all contribute to the wisdom and strength of the group. In a sense, one could draw an analogy to the ancient Indian tale of the elephant and the blind men, where a group of blind men are asked to describe an elephant. One feels the tail and describes the elephant as being like a rope. Another feels the leg and describes it as a pillar, and so on. Acting alone, the blind men are all way off the mark. But if enough blind men were assembled in a group, each contributing to the picture, eventually they would come up with a pretty good description of an elephant. A key 2004 study at Stanford University directly demonstrated the benefit of diversity in improving the thinking capacity of a group. Researchers Anthony Antonio and Kenji Hakuta divided a group of white students into small groups set up to discuss several contentious social issues, such as capital punishment. Unknown to the students, they were grouped so that all shared the same opinions, based on a pre-screening interview. 
also unknown to the subjects, was that one of the students in each group was a plant, collaborating with the researchers. Half of the plants were black, half were white. In addition, some plants were instructed to agree, and some asked to disagree with the others in the group. In carefully analyzing the content of assigned 15-minute pre- and post-discussion essays, the researchers found conclusive evidence that diversity in these groups had beneficial effects on the thinking abilities of the group members, specifically improving a type of thinking known as integrative complexity, IC. IC is a measure of high-level intellectual thinking, roughly involving the ability to look at a problem from a variety of perspectives and to be able to integrate these various perspectives in coming to a conclusion. IC is valuable in problem-solving and decision-making. The benefits in the study were found when a group included a member of another race, whether the black student agreed with the majority or not. In the same way, the benefit was found when the group included a member with a different opinion, whether this different opinion was expressed by a black or white plant. Considering that this is just one example of the many benefits of diversity, one might reasonably ask, well, if diversity is so great, and crowds are so damn smart, why isn't there greater diversity in crowds at all levels in society, with more people naturally choosing to work and live in more diverse environments? The answer, as usual, is, well, things aren't that simple. There are many variables in dealing with human behavior. So, despite the benefits of diversity, there's a catch. The group also must be motivated to work together and not let their differences cause bickering or conflict that prevents working together productively. In order to enjoy the benefits of diversity, those from different racial or ethnic backgrounds must first have the opportunity to come into contact with each other, and then must begin to break down attitudes that create barriers among diverse groups. In order to tackle this problem, it is important to understand that just as there are benefits to diverse groups, there are also benefits to homogeneous groups, such as greater productivity arising from group solidarity and a sense of cohesion. Recent research clearly confirms that people trust each other more, have a stronger feeling of community, lower crime rate, and decreased levels of depression and anxiety disorders when living in more homogeneous communities or where your group is in the majority. So, somehow, we must reconcile the fact that people feel happier when living among those of similar race and ethnicity, with the absolute need for a sense of harmony and cooperation among different groups, the need to feel comfortable with those of other races and nationalities in our increasingly multicultural societies. This issue is dramatized in Western society today by the intense debate between those who feel we should celebrate our racial and ethnic differences, seeing nothing wrong with keeping to our own, and those who argue in favor of greater integration of our multicultural societies, even total assimilation into one big happy human family. Earlier, the Dalai Lama spoke of the need for a greater spirit of community, for cultivating a sense of connectedness, of closer social bonds. But here, we can categorize two types of social bonds. One type binds people together within a group, 
on the basis of common traits such as the same racial, ethnic, or religious background. The second type creates closer social ties between members of different groups, what is often called bridging social ties. Most social scientists today agree that it is the bridging social ties that are badly needed in contemporary Western society, the type tragically lacking in the Balkans among the Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks. The challenge, of course, is how to build these bridging social ties, how to create a feeling of connection to a wider community while still retaining cultural or ethnic identity. The studies show that people feel happier if they're with people who are like themselves. But what does like themselves mean? This seems to be the crux of the problem, a problem that was also clearly identified by the Dalai Lama when speaking about the destructive aspects of us and them thinking, concluding, we need to promote a more inclusive way of relating to others. That's certain. We need to find a way to look at others from different racial, ethnic, or national groups and perceive all of them to be part of a larger, more inclusive we. In this chapter, the Dalai Lama presented some sound strategies to help us overcome the biases, prejudice, and hatred that can act as obstacles to cultivating this more inclusive way of perceiving others. In part three of this book, we will return to the discussion of how to relate to others in a more inclusive way, showing how this can lead to greater personal happiness as well as help overcome many of the societal problems in today's world. Before turning our attention to those topics, however, events in the world reminded us that there were still some vitally important issues to discuss in our quest to find happiness in our troubled world. Part 2 Violence versus Dialogue Chapter 6 Human Nature Revisited On the morning of September 11, 2001, events were unfolding that were to change the world. As the World Trade Center was collapsing in New York, the Dalai Lama was peacefully asleep in his modest bedroom at his hilltop home in the mountains of northern India. The following morning, he awoke at his customary hour of 3.30 a.m., briefly shook the sleep from his system, and by 4 a.m. began his daily ritual as a Buddhist monk, with four hours of prayer and meditation. So as the clarion call for a new war was sounding in America, the Dalai Lama sat deep in meditation, the only sound a comforting patter of a light monsoon rain falling on the tin roof of his private quarters, while outside an atmosphere of peace and tranquility settled over this remote mountain village, still enveloped in darkness at this hour. Not long after 9-11, I returned to the Dalai Lama's home in Dharamsala to resume our discussions. It had been almost a year since we had last met in this room, and it seemed that nothing in the room had changed in the interim. In fact, nothing had seemed to change in that room during the two decades that I had been visiting there. It had the same spacious, peaceful feeling, the same quality of openness created by the large windows, one side facing snow-capped mountains, the other side 
facing the lush Kangra Valley, extending far below. The same Tankas, Buddhist scroll paintings of the goddess Tara, framed in colorful silk brocade, hung on the pale yellow walls. The same floor-to-ceiling relief map of Tibet covered one wall, and the same Buddhist shrine adorned with fine Buddhist icons, statues, ritual bowls, and butter lamps remained where it had always been. Even the Dalai Lama's simple upholstered chair and the matching sofa on which I sat, both arranged around a large, deep red lacquer coffee table, appeared to be the same. No, not much had changed here, I thought, as I looked around the room. In fact, as the decades passed, as far as I could tell, the only visible changes had occurred in the adjoining room, one reserved for guests waiting to meet with the Dalai Lama. As the years passed, the room's walls had filled with more and more awards, honorary university degrees, honors, medals, and plaques. But the world outside had changed. In the intervening months since my last meeting with the Dalai Lama, the terrorist attacks of September 11th had occurred, and once again, world events reminded us of the cruel and horrible things that human beings can do to one another. We embarked that morning on an investigation of the darker side of human behavior, the acts of violence, the hatred, the atrocities that human beings can inflict upon one another. In our last series of discussions, we had investigated the origin of the dualistic us-versus-them way of thinking that can give rise to prejudice and conflict. Now, we turned our attention to the more aggressive forms of human behavior, seeking to understand the causes of violence. In attempting to trace the causes of these acts of evil to their source, we began with a fundamental question. Are violence and aggression simply part of our basic human nature? Is our basic nature violent? That morning, the Dalai Lama recounted in speaking of 9-11, after my meditation, my attendant, Labsangawa, came into my study and informed me that the World Trade Center in New York had been attacked. He told me that the buildings had completely collapsed. What was your first reaction? I asked. Disbelief. I thought, this can't be true. I thought someone was telling me a story. So I turned on the BBC World Service radio and listened as they covered this. Then I switched on the BBC World Service TV, and I watched these planes crash into the buildings and the buildings collapse in flames. Then I knew it was true. I saw the people's desperate attempts to avoid being burnt alive, jumping from the windows. So sad. Such destruction. It was unthinkable. Unthinkable. So what was your second reaction after you got over your disbelief? The Dalai Lama shook his head sadly. It created a powerful reminder of the destructive potential of human beings. Such hatred. It is almost beyond imagination. I then prayed for all the innocent victims and their families. Thinking back to America's reaction to the attack that day, one of outrage, a swift, forceful determination to bring the perpetrators to justice, I asked, Well, 
When one considers the terrible suffering that those terrorists and people like bin Laden have brought upon thousands of innocent people, that human beings can do this to one another, doesn't that sometimes undermine your basic belief in the goodness of human beings, of human nature? No, the Dalai Lama responded, without missing a beat. Not at all. Because even though such horrible acts like this are committed by a handful of human beings, I remain firmly convinced of the basic goodness of human beings, and at the fundamental level, our nature is gentle and not violent. This was not the first time we had spoken of basic human nature. I thought back to the very first time we had discussed this topic, more than a decade earlier. I recalled his direct, penetrating look and unequivocal tone as he had said, It is my firm conviction that human nature is essentially compassionate, gentle. That is the predominant feature of human nature. His views on this topic had apparently not changed. Despite my prior awareness of the Dalai Lama's essentially positive view of human nature, I was still a bit surprised by the unwavering tone of complete conviction when he said that the events of September 11th, still so fresh, had not shaken his belief in the fundamental goodness of human beings. Even directly confronting the cruel and senseless murder of thousands of innocent people did not give him a moment's pause, and in fact, his belief seemed to be stronger than ever. Wanting to understand where his strength of conviction came from, I asked, Well, when we see the brutal, terrible things people do to one another, how can that not have any effect on your belief in the fundamental goodness of human nature, of human beings, which even includes the perpetrators of atrocities like September 11th? The Dalai Lama thought for a moment. Perhaps one thing is that I look at such events from a wider perspective. When such things happen, we often tend to look for one person or a group of people to blame. But I think it is wrong just to look at one individual or group of individuals and isolate them as the sole cause. If you adopt a wider view, you'll see that there can be many causes of violence, and there can be many factors contributing to such events. So many factors. In this case, for example, I think religious belief is also involved. So if you reflect on this event more deeply, he explained, you realize that many factors contributed to this tragedy. To me, this reinforced one crucial fact. It showed to me that modern technology, combined with human intelligence and guided by negative emotions, this is how such unthinkable disasters happen. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? He replied, You see, these terrorists must have had tremendous almost unimaginable determination to sacrifice their own lives to commit such an act. That could not happen without forceful emotions, negative emotions. That provides the motivation. But then, motivation alone, negative emotions by themselves, do not produce such events. If you think about it, you realize that a lot of planning must have gone into this attack, months if not years of careful planning. For example, it was calculated so the planes were full of fuel. These precise plans require the use of human intelligence. And then, 
they need the means to accomplish such an act. In this case, aircraft were used, a result of modern technology. So this is what I mean. You know, he continued with a sigh, in reality, so many factors contribute to such horrible acts. For example, these individuals were motivated by hatred. In fact, when I first saw the building collapse on September 11th, I thought, hatred, that's the real culprit. Your Holiness, I can understand your view how there may be all these factors contributing to these acts of horror. But the fact is that ultimately it comes down to an individual or a group of individuals inflicting acts of violence and suffering on other human beings. So don't you think it is possible that, setting aside all these complex factors and causes that you mention, some people are really just evil? That their nature is evil? Shaking his head, the Dalai Lama replied, This concept of evil, even the very word evil, can be problematic. As we have discussed before, it seems like in the West, sometimes there is a tendency to see things in absolute terms, to see things as black or white, all or nothing. On top of that, under the influence of mental states such as anger, this tendency becomes even stronger. A kind of distortion of one's thinking, one's perception, takes place. So, as I mentioned, when you think of such events, you immediately seek a target, looking for an individual or group to blame, something concrete that you can direct all your anger and outrage at. And in that state, you see things in terms of all good or all bad, see people as good or evil. So from that perspective, you might view a person as purely evil. But from a Buddhist perspective, we have no concept of absolute evil, in the sense of evil as something which exists independently, something that is not caused by other factors, that cannot be affected by other factors, and cannot be changed or modified by other conditions. Absolute evil has a sense of permanence, so we do not accept the idea of evil people, in the sense that a particular person's intrinsic nature is 100% evil, and they will remain that way because it is their fundamental unchanging nature. Now, within the Buddhist perspective, we do have the concept of a person acting in an evil way, doing evil things, under the influence of negative emotions and bad motivation and so on. But we see this evil behavior arising as a result of certain causes and conditions. We feel such events can be explainable without invoking a metaphysical force like evil. So basically, he summarized, if a person commits a very destructive act, you can say that act is evil. No question. And you should always oppose that act as an evil act. You must take a very strong stand. And let's say that the person's motivation for the act was hatred then you can say that both the motivation and the action that it leads to are evil because of their destructive nature. But we still cannot view that individual as an evil person, intrinsically and permanently evil, because there is always the potential or possibility 
that a new set of conditions will come into play, and that very same person may no longer engage in the evil behavior. Well, I can understand what you were saying, I said, but if you look at that act as arising from a variety of causes and conditions, and view the perpetrator as just under the sway of all these other factors, and that these factors are what really cause the behavior, isn't there a danger of seeming to excuse or condone the person's behavior, as if it is not their fault? It seems that the more you look at the various causes and conditions leading to the act, the more you seem to let the perpetrators themselves off the hook. Again, he said, saying that nobody is intrinsically evil, that evil is a relative state dependent on other factors, does not give someone an excuse to commit these evil acts. Just because you allow for the possibility of one's motivations and behaviors to change in the future, this does not mean that you somehow excuse or condone that act, or that you do not hold them responsible, as if they had nothing to do with it. Well, I countered, regardless of whether these horrible acts of violence are the result of identifiable causes and conditions, or they are attributed to evil people, the fact remains that human beings are capable of this kind of behavior. We have preyed upon and inflicted suffering on each other throughout human history. I mean, you even mentioned that your second reaction to hearing about 9-11, after you realized it was real, was that it was a powerful reminder of the destructive potential of human beings. And there are so many reminders. Acts of destruction like the Holocaust, so horrible it defies imagination. I don't know, but it seems that such stark reminders of our destructive potential, our capacity to inflict harm and cause others suffering, might at least give one pause to consider the darker side of human nature. With a solemn nod, he slowly replied, Yes, when you are confronted with horrors like the Holocaust, it can shake your faith in humanity itself. You know... I'll never forget my first visit to Auschwitz. There were several things I saw there that struck me very powerfully, and one of them was this huge collection of shoes, the shoes of the victims. And what struck me with complete horror and deep sadness was when I saw many small shoes, children's shoes. I felt so strongly for those innocent children. They didn't even know what was going on. I really felt, who could do such a thing? So, I prayed there. These last words had been spoken softly, and as his words trailed off into silence, his somber expression led me to wait a few beats before continuing. The Dalai Lama did not believe in the concept of absolute evil. He seemed to have no compulsion to isolate Hitler and his evil henchmen as the sole cause of the Holocaust, directing the full force of his anger and sense of moral outrage at them. Yet when speaking of experiences like his visit to Auschwitz, one can sense in his tone of voice and general manner how profoundly affected he is, and one does not sense an absence of moral outrage. This is not a matter of him ignoring the horrors of such tragedies nor is he unaware of the evil things human beings can do to one another. Still, with full awareness of the human capacity for evil, his belief in the fundamental goodness of humanity 
remains unshaken. Continuing our conversation, I said, Your Holiness, I guess my point is that whenever people consider the Holocaust or similar events on a smaller scale, it not only seems to be a confirmation that there is evil in the world, but it also seems to challenge this benevolent view of human nature. Again, he said, I think it would be a mistake to look at such events and conclude that these things represent our basic human nature, as if somehow we are compelled to act that way. We must remember that these kinds of situations are not the norm, not representative of ordinary day-to-day -day life. For example, in Buddhist ethics, we have a list of what are called heinous crimes. These include the murdering of one's own father and mother, creating schism within the community, and so on. But just because these things exist doesn't mean that human beings cannot adopt a moral way of life. Yes, that may be true, but... Howard, he went on, I think we should remember that what we are proposing is a mode of behavior that is grounded upon the recognition of the basic goodness of human nature, and with that full awareness, deliberately adopting a way of life to express this. That is our purpose, our goal. So that's why we are trying to educate humanity. We are trying to promote the idea that basic human nature is positive, so there is the possibility to promote our sense of community, our sense of concern. And this is not a religious matter. This is not simply a matter of philosophy either. It is our future.